morning, everyone. Good morning. Good to see you. Happy Time Change Sunday. It is now officially 9 a.m., right? Something about Time Change Sunday. Anybody else, it like, feels like 5 a.m.? What is it? Just like one hour throws so much off. Um, but hey, good morning. Glad you're here. Uh, braved the cold rain. And I uh, want to give a shout out to this morning, Disciple Makers. Welcome. Thank you guys for being here. All right. We, uh, yeah. Uh, we, we have a, a few, four different schools, right? Four different colleges from the, let me get this right, Susquehanna Valley in Pennsylvania. Uh, we have, I may not get the names right, so we have Bucknell, Bucknell? I'm a hillbilly, so I'll say it wrong. Bucknell, Bucknell, okay, Bucknell. Uh, Bloomsburg University, what's up? Susquehanna University, all right, great. And then this is the hard one. The one how do you say it? Lycoming, Lycoming College. Good to have you guys. Thanks for being here to worship with us this morning. Uh, last week we had a we had a crew from Penn State Disciple Makers, and they all sat like in the middle and in the back, so it threw all you guys off. You guys sat in the front, so you didn't throw anyone off of their seats this morning. So thank you guys for doing that. Great to see you guys. Uh, we we are going to continue in our series Jesus According to Mark. So we've been going through Mark since last Easter. And we're going to uh, finish up uh, on, on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday this year. So we are finishing up chapter 14 today. And so the way Mark's uh, kind of biography of Jesus has gone is um, very fast-paced, very action-packed. This happened, then that happened, then Jesus said this, and they went here, then they did that. And then when it comes to the last week of Jesus' life and ministry on earth before his death and resurrection, uh, Mark really slows down and focuses in. And then in uh, these last few chapters, he kind of slows down even more and looks like the last day or two of the life of Jesus before his crucifixion and resurrection. And so today, as, as we're looking, uh, we're picking up from where last week, Pastor Fred took us through the verses where Jesus was... Um, was praying on, on, in the Garden of Gethsemane with some of his disciples, and then he was betrayed by Judas, and he was arrested. And so we're going to pick up in kind of the subsequent uh, hours that follow the arrest of Jesus this morning. So, so what we're going to do, I'm going to read, uh, picking up Mark 14, picking up in verse 53. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, and then I'll pray, and then we'll jump into the message this morning. And, and what I'm hoping uh, for us today, and my prayer for this morning was um, that as we kind of see uh, where today we fit into the story and as we kind of identify uh, with different parts of the story and how we relate to Jesus. My prayer is uh, that we leave today uh, in more faith and trust in Jesus than we had when we came in um, and to give us uh, some hope. So I'm not sure if anybody came in today needing a little bit of hope, I'm ho I, I, but, but my prayer for us is that we walk away with some hope in the name of Jesus this morning. So let's look at Mark 14. Picking up in verse 40 and uh, 53. So they took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they could not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. In verse 58, they said, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. But even their testimony did not agree. 
So then the high priest stood up before them and he asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and he gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him, worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards, they took him and they beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. Hey, you were also with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know, what you're, I don't know or even understand what you're talking about. And he went out into the entryway. Then the servant girl saw him there, and she said again to those standing around, Hey, this fellow is one of them. And again, he denied it. And after a little while, those standing near Peter said, Surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man who you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let's pray, Jesus, thank you uh, for your word. We are your church, and we are your people. Thank you that as we gather today 2,000 years later across cultures, across oceans, continents, languages, that we still have your word, and I pray that you make yourself as real to us today as you were to the people who heard you speak 2,000 years ago. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. In September of 2007, Nebraska State Senator Ernie Chambers filed a lawsuit. The lawsuit was against God. The lawsuit sought to bring a permanent injunction against God's interference in the world. He claimed that because of God, humans in our world had suffered from natural disasters, birth defects, widespread war, hatred, famine, death. And so he sought to legally put an end to the activity and presence of God in the life of Americans and hopefully the world. The court eventually dismissed the trial with prejudice because they said they couldn't uh, properly notify God of the trial since they didn't have an address on file. He fought the dismissal, saying that because God's omniscient, he should have known he was being sued and come to defend himself. Uh, We can laugh at that because it is silly. Uh, We know how Funny it is, really, I mean, just even the, just kind of the base reaction of how ironic it is for humans to put God on trial, right? How silly it is for God. We can laugh about it, but today in the story, we see people putting God on trial. We see God as man come down from heaven to earth, putting him on trial, taking a vote, and seeing him to be worthy of death, So what I want to do today is I want to kind of look at some ways and what happens and how we get to the point where we might put God on trial in our lives. Because here's what I mean when I say when we put God on trial in our lives. It's when, like 
the people in the story here, whether it's Peter, whether it's the high priest, whether it's the chief priest, the elders, the Sanhedrin, all that, it's when we as humans are confronted with the presence and the power of God in our lives and the requirements of the life that he calls us to, and we measure out if it's worth it or not. We measure out if it's worth it or not. It means taking inventory of the life of the Messiah, the way that he lives, the words that he speaks, the life that he offers, and then we take inventory of our own lives and figure out if it's worth going up against the things we hold most dear. See, look how, look how Mark sets the scene in verses 53 and 54. First, you have Jesus being accused. He's taken to the high priest, the elders, and things like that. We'll get to Peter uh, in a little bit later. But, but if you kind of look at what they do first, they, they bring uh, the people who throughout the life and ministry of Jesus, as he's taught, as he's performed miracles, as he's done incredible things, they've witnessed that. And they're people who have found themselves offended and upset by what he's said and done. They are people who have taken note of the activity of Jesus and his power, and they want nothing to do with it. And so if we put ourselves in the shoes of the people who have, who have seen the life of Jesus, felt his power, felt his presence, and we are confronted by his words, by his teaching, the demands of discipleship that he offers, and we find ourselves internally or maybe even externally processing whether it's worth it or not, then we ourselves have put some God, we've put God on trial in our lives. So here's one way, here's one way that we do that. If, if we look at the life of the chief priest in here, one way that we put God on trial in our lives is when we double down on our control. Or you know what double down means? Double down, it, I think it originates from uh, playing like, like poker games. Whenever you're betting, you put chips down and then you see your card, so you double down. But we do it in different ways in life. If you don't, you know, if you don't play uh, games like that, um, one way that I double down in my life a lot, especially when it comes to control and being right, is uh, my wife has a spiritual gift. Uh, her spiritual gift is when we're watching any animated movie with our kids, she'll hear a voice and she'll know exactly whose voice it is from other movies and TV shows. Okay? I, I was joking when I called it a spiritual gift because um, we're in church. I felt like I needed to say that to wake everybody up a little bit. But I do not have that gift. I'm actually really bad at it. But I am very competitive. Okay? So what will be happening is, is we'll be watching like Sing 2 or something with our kids, um, which is just a awful movie. It's just so bad. Objectively, it's just, other than Bono at the end, spoiler alert, that's the, like, that's the only redeeming factor. But, but we'll, like, we'll be watching this movie and Anna's like, hey, this person's from, from this movie that we watched like five years ago. And I'm like, no, I, even if I don't know, I'm like, no, I don't think you're right. I don't think you're right. And she's like, no, I'm, like, I'm telling you it is. And we're like, all right, like, whoever's wrong, dishes after dinner. And I'm like, deal, I'll double down on that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, I don't even know if I'm right. I just want her to be wrong. So we whip out IMDb and like 15 years into us being together and I think uh, she's batting like around 700 right now. Um, she's very, very good at it. And what the religious leaders that we were seeing they're doing, the, the chief priests, the, the Sanhedrin, which is kind of the local judges uh, that would kind of function within the temple for, for the community in Jerusalem, uh, they were doing here whatever it took for them to hold on to power and control in their lives. 
Uh, this is an underlying story throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. The religious leaders just could not handle the reality that they may lose power and control in their community and their own, own lives. Notice what they do. It's interesting. Like, all it took for this trial to go the way it did was just the chief priest. Just took one person, the, the high priest that was on duty. It just took one person, according to the law. But they bring everyone they knew who had any kind of standing, right? Like, like they bring Jesus in and they're stacking the odds in their favor to prove a point. They're doubling down here. Because what happens is if they lose their control, if Jesus is who he says he is, they have to come to terms with things that he said, like, like hey, you've heard it said that not to commit murder, but I'm telling you that if you hate your brother in your heart, you've already committed murder. Or he's saying things like, hey, love your neighbor as yourself. And they say, well, who is my neighbor? And he tells them a story about the Samaritans who they hate, this other ethnically, culturally, like, bordering group of people with their community that they just can't stand to be around. And he's saying, that's your neighbor, and you have to love them. He's taking a group of, of disciples, the 12 disciples. You have a tax collector, which basically would be seen, like, if you think in terms of Star Wars like I do, it's basically like, like someone from the Rebel Alliance who's working for the evil empire. You have, you have Simon the Zealot, who's the exact opposite. A zealot means they've committed their lives to do what Phineas did, which is to basically kill anyone who, who threatens the holiness of the community in front of God. Right? You have Peter, who just cut off a dude's ear like an hour before the story we're reading today. And you have John, who's probably like 13 years old or younger. Right? You have this ragtag group of people that Jesus is calling his followers and he's taking them around and he's healing people. And he's, do, he's taking uneducated people and he's bringing them along and giving them power to go cast out demons and perform miracles in their names. And the religious leaders are looking around at the scoreboard and they're realizing they're losing this, this power struggle. Because Jesus, here he is, he's the Messiah. In their eyes, he is a pitiful Messiah. Like, he, he hasn't done anything to challenge the Roman Empire. He hasn't done anything to get back their promised covenant ancestral land back to their people. He's coming in and he's saying things like, hey, if your neighbor or if, you're, if, if, if someone hits you, just offer him the other cheek. Hey, if someone asks you for your cloak, just give them all of your clothes because it's better that they have more than you do. They don't know what to do about it. I mean, Jesus came and he turned the, like, like power dynamic on its head. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the high priests here, what they're doing is they can't lose control and they're terrified of losing their control. John Steinbeck in his book, The Short Reign of Pippin IV, says, power does not corrupt. Fear corrupts. And perhaps the fear of losing power. See, they didn't really care if they were actually right. They just needed to prove that Jesus was wrong. They needed to prove for them that Jesus was wrong. And see, we, we, you may be sitting there thinking like, okay, that sounds good, but I'm a middle schooler. I don't even get to choose when I wake up. Like, I don't, you know, like, I don't have any control in my life. I'm not this community leader. I'm certainly not looking God in the eyes and saying no to him, putting him on trial. But we, we do this all the time. We meet and are confronted with Jesus by his word, by things he's asking us to do. 
and we measure out whether it's worth it or not to give things up. Like maybe it's just confessing a sin. Man, what, man if, I, if I confess this sin, if I, if I can, man, what would people think about me? Man, if I go and say that to this person, if I forgive this person and let them off the hook, man, how's that gonna, that's gonna hurt. I mean, I mean if, I, if I drudge back up these hard conversations again with this person that I love, I mean, is it worth it? Is it worth it? See, anyone who's come to the point of seeing and hearing Jesus has some decisions to make. See, we love Jesus as Savior, but it's harder to know him as Lord, isn't it? Because Jesus comes and he looks our idols dead in the eyes, and he asks them, not really asks them, he commands them to get out, and that's no fun. When we compartmentalize our lives to the point where we start thinking we don't need to obey a part of Jesus' teaching, so we justify it or we downplay it or we look past it, when we mask our fears and anxieties by forcing our will on other people and trying to control them, it's like reading through the stories of the Old Testament kings, like First Kings, Second, you know, First Second Kings, First Second Chronicles. It's just this constant cycle of people not willing to give up control, even though they know the demands of God in their lives, and it just ends to like in constant like conflict and war and death. And this, this I mean, this is one of the great plays. The enemy is used against humans since the beginning of humanity, right? So God created the earth, and He cultivated this beautiful garden. And he created humans in his likeness, and he basically says, hey, what I did here, I want you to go and do in the rest of the world. Go cultivate the earth, subdue it, make it beautiful, right? And then what's interesting, that the first thing the serpent says to Eve, right, he says, hey, God didn't say not to eat it. What's interesting is that he uses a truth, right? He says, you surely aren't gonna die. Like, the serpent who, like, tried to, like take over the throne of God and kicked out of heaven. Like he knows God's gracious and merciful. He's like, hey man, you're not gonna die. He says, he knows that if you eat it, you will become what? Like God. But isn't that super ironic? Like they were already made like God, weren't they? He says, in your image, man and woman were created. In his likeness, he created them. But the play was, hey, God wants you to rule and, and cultivate the earth on his terms, but why don't you just take matters into your own hands? Why don't you just gain that level of power and control on your terms and not on God's terms? So, so it says that Eve saw it and she took it, and then she gave it. And that kind of formula has been replaying itself in human history, right? I mean, think about the stories in the Old Testament, Abraham and Sarah, Abraham was given this great promise of God he said, he said, hey, you're, you're going to become a mighty nation that's going to bless the whole earth. You're gonna become a, your, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars of heaven, sand on the seashore. You just wait for, your, wait for the promised son. Wait for the promised son. But then it says Sarah didn't want to wait. She, she heard the promise. She knew it could happen on God's terms, but instead she wanted it to happen on her terms, so she saw Hagar. She took her and she gave her. And that's what's happened over and over in human history. The chief priests, they, they knew that God was going to send a Messiah. They knew that he was going to do it on his terms. But instead, they saw what they wanted and they took it. And they see Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was not where they couldn't find anything against him. But they chose him to be worthy of death. They doubled down on that 
control. And this is why even Jesus, it's interesting that, that this is the first time in his, in his public life and ministry that we have recorded that he openly admits to being the Messiah. And it's the first time he was in a situation not surrounded by the crowd who would take him and make him king on their terms. They tried to do that over and over again, and he'd slip away and he'd disappear because his time had not yet come. Yet now here he is, the odds stacked against him, people doubling down their control, and he says, no, I am, I am the Messiah. I am. And he uses this, this Old Testament Daniel 7 imagery of being the one who connects heaven and earth, who rides the clouds down from heaven back to earth and bridges that gap. You see, Jesus wasn't who they wanted him to be. They were hoping for a Messiah that would come and restore glory to Israel. And yet, here was Jesus, who instead of coming to kill his enemies, was going to die on their behalf. Who was going to show, instead of that power equals might, that power is shown through humility and weakness. And because they were doubling down on their control, because they were refusing to admit who Jesus was and his power and presence in their lives, they were unable to see the innocent Passover lamb that they had probably celebrated a few hours before with their family because they were too guilty of being power hungry. So that's one way we, we, we put God on trial in our lives. So when we double down on the control of our lives and refuse to submit to him, the second way that we do it is when we lose sight of God's word. Now, lose sight of God's word. See, the religious leaders, they, they were trying to use the testimony of Jesus against himself. But it just, it, they couldn't make it happen. You remember what happened to Peter? Pete, there's Peter. Uh, he's in the courtyard. And, and it says that after the crow, the rooster crowed the second time, Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken to him. See, this is the Peter that, that said a few weeks before in ministry where Jesus is like, hey, like, hey, if you guys want to leave too, you totally can. Like, I get it. And Peter said, where else are we going to go? Like, you have the words of, of eternal life. Like, where are we going to go, Jesus? Like, P Peter's the guy who, all right, imagine, imagine this coffee situation. Um, somebody texts you, and they're like, hey, can we grab some coffee? I need to talk. And, and you're like, sure. So you, so you meet with them, and, and they talk, and you're like, hey, what's on your mind? You seem troubled. And they're like, hey, I just want you to know I was in my quiet time the other day. Satan asked if they could have you and sift you out like wheat. But I told him no. Don't worry. It's like, what? Like, that's what Jesus said to Peter like a few days before this incident. And then Peter's like at the Passover meal, Jesus, Jesus says, when are you guys are going to betray me? Right? And Peter speaks up. He's like, Jesus, all these other jokers might, like, I'm never going to betray you. I'm not going to do it. And Jesus warns him. Like, this is hours before what happens right here. Like, Jesus is telling Peter exactly what's going to happen. He loses sight. And, and, and then, the next thing you know, he's, he's denying Jesus. He, in his own way, is putting Jesus on trial in that moment. When the, when the, the little girl asks him, like, hey, aren't you one of those guys? Like, that could have mean anybody. And he said, no, no, that's not me. That's not me. He had lost sight of the things that Jesus had told him. Psalm uh, 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so let me just ask you, like, what are you, like, what are you hiding in your heart? What, like, what's in there? Proverbs 4 says that to guard your heart because from it flow the springs 
of life. See, here's the the enemy doesn't necessarily care. Like if you commit some, if we commit some like huge monster heinous sin or crime, like like that can happen, but just like in the garden where the false accusation was leveled about what God said and kind of seemed to be true, but he twisted it just a little bit to Eve. That's what the power-hungry leaders were doing here. They were taking what Jesus said, just trying to twist it enough to get what they wanted. They lose sight of the reality. I mean, most of the, most of the guys putting Jesus on trial probably had the first five books of the Bible completely memorized. That's the, part of the, the, that's the part of the Bible that you get halfway through Exodus. It gets to the laws, and you just skip back to Matthew, you know? Like they had that junk memorized. Like, think about when Jesus was being tempted by Satan. Out of the three temptations he brings, he quotes scripture to Jesus twice. Like, if you could just lose sight, just a little twist, then that's where it all goes. Like, the enemy isn't trying to, like, get us to leave today and, like, go get in a fight with somebody in a public restaurant and it's on the news. Like, hey, Christians fight in public. Like, they're not worried. We're doing enough of that on our own. Like, he don't really have to worry about that. What he's trying to get us to do is to numb our brains and our spiritual senses and our hunger for God with 30 hours of online content to where we're no longer a threat against his kingdom. Like, that's what he's trying to do. Like, the Puritans put it this way. He said, the deadening effects of innocent delights. It's when, the, it's when the algorithms with your smart TV, with the camera that watches where your eyes set so that they can design TV shows like, you know what the CEO of Netflix said when he was asked about what his greatest competitor is, whether it's like Prime Video or Hulu or something? Do, you know do you know what the CEO of Netflix said their number one competitor is? Sleep. They are literally, the, and like, I, I'm, I have Netflix, okay? Like, don't, like, I'm not saying, like, maybe you should. I don't know, whatever Jesus is calling you to do. Like, I'm not saying, like, throw your TV out and cancel all your subscription or whatever, like, like, I'm about to finish Better Call Saul, and it's just great TV. Like, it just is, okay? But what I'm saying is, like, like, if I'm not careful, I can go through, and I can flip through channels, and I can watch TikToks, and I can watch reels all day long, and the next thing I know is that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and what I've put in my heart is content that has nothing to do with advancing the kingdom of God. And my hunger, like I'll read the Psalms, it's like, God, I hunger for you. My whole being thirsts for you. And I'm like, I can't even remember the last time I felt that true. Like, I can't remember the last time I thought that was true for me. The enemy would rather just get us to lose sight a little bit of the promises that God gave us. Listen to what John Piper said. And man, this is just brutal for me. He said, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that doles our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. See, that's what does it for us. It's just those little pieces of life where we're choosing, we're choosing one thing over another. There's a guy that wrote a book, uh, his last name's Christofferson. It's called Kingdom Matrix, and he says that at any given moment, we're making a decision to advance one or two kingdoms, either the kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness. And like I said, I'm not trying to like be some crazy legalistic guy that says like, like go be a monk. Maybe God's calling you to that, I don't know. Like that would be, part of me thinks that'd be fun, but that's only because I have two toddlers at home right now. <laughs> what I'm saying is like, 
if you're looking at what you're sowing into, okay? So, so, so in Galatians 6, Paul kind of gives us an insight of this law of returns that God, God put into the universe in the way, the way it works. So in Galatians 6, he says, don't be deceived. God can't be mocked, okay? Like God, he, he can't be mocked. Here's why. Because a person reaps what they sow. So that's like agriculture farming terms, like you sow seeds, and then whatever grows, you reap that harvest. Listen to what he says. He says, whoever sows to please the flesh, so in the context of this sermon today, like doubling down on controlling your lives or sin, from the flesh, they will reap destruction. It's the same thing Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, hey, people, like when they pray, they're praying for, for like notoriety and eyesight, like eye service, and that's what they get. They're reaping what they sow. And you know, Jesus basically says those who are giving to be seen, who are praying to be seen, who are doing good works just to be seen, he says, surely they'll be rewarded. They're going to get what they sowed. They're going to reap the benefits. The problem is that you don't get to take any of that with you. Like it all stays here. Paul keeps going, he says, but whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. That word eternal life, that phrase, it's used all throughout the Gospels, all in the New Testament, and it's both a present reality and a future hope at the same time. Like we get to experience eternal life now on earth as we sow our life into the Spirit of God and we reap the benefits of that, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And, and students, middle school, high school students, college students, that's why it's so important to fight against falling into that trap where you feel like you have to watch every show, where like you feel like if you don't watch TikTok and you're not sharing all that stuff that like you're missing out on something. I promise, you may not miss out on it. I'm not saying to get rid of it. I'm just saying well, you got to watch your heart here because like you might know every good show that comes out. You might keep up on all the latest trends and everything. And you know what you get when you get that? Like you, like you keep up on all that? That's just what you get. Like, it, like that's what you get. You reap what you sow. You sow into that and you get it. I'm just asking, like, like, can we just not work hard to sow more into the spirit than into the flesh? Because in Romans 8, Paul talks about it again. He says, he says, for those who go on gratifying the desires of the flesh, find what it leads to, which is death. It's the greatest enemy humans have never been able to create or never been able to overcome. We're at the highest peak of technological, medical, like advances in the world and the rates of anxiety, depression, hospitalizations, death, murder are at the all-time high right with it. But he says those who live by the Spirit will put to death the deeds of the flesh. So what I'm saying is like, you just, we've, we've got to be people who know the Word of God. Like we just can't afford to lose sight of the Word of God. And, and I'm not talking about like, like do it or else. Like I'm just trying to call you into a life. In, in, in 2 Peter, he says that the promises, Peter's writing to a church, he says that the promises of God that we call to, they are the way that we partake in the divine nature of God and we overcome the corruption of the world and its evil desires. So you're like, man, like, like, I'm, like I wish I could overcome this sin. Like, man, I've just been stuck in this thing. 
I've been stuck in this mindset. You know, 90% of the thoughts we have on a daily basis are not new thoughts. They're recycled. So when Paul talks about being renewed in the, in the, the way of your mind, the, the pattern of your thinking, renewing your mind, it literally is clinging to the promises of God found in his word that he gives us so that we can partake in the divine nature. Like, if you're a man, like, like you read a book or you hear a story about like, a, like one of the great like Christian saints, followers, you're like, man, how, did I, how do I get to that point? How do I partake in the divine nature of God, right? How many of you have asked that question last week specifically like that? We maybe have asked it in some way, right? Like, how do I have that? Like, have you ever met someone or you know someone farther down the road than you and you just see the way, they're like the people you're in a room and you're like, okay, that person follows Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Like, how do I get what they have? You become a partaker in the divine nature by holding on to the promises of God found in his word. And so as we're talking about this, let me just say this, because for some of you guys, especially like, I think like college students, high school students in the room, middle school students, um, let me just say this, like the prayers you're praying right now are not wasted prayers, okay? Like, and that's for all of us in the room. Maybe you're in a tough season where you just feel like you, you have, you're doing everything you can and you just like can't hear God or you just can't quite feel his presence in your life. Let me just say the prayers you're praying right now the seeds, the prayers, the, the, the commitments you're making in the spirit are not wasted right now. You just may not quite be far enough down the road to see the benefit yet. Like there, there are prayers that my wife and I, we started dating when we were in high school, and I'm talking to you guys right now, okay? As I was praying this week, I felt like this was a word for college students specifically. My wife and I started dating in high school. We were those weird kids that got married when we were like sophomores in college. And, and, and so we're about to have our third kid like any day. My wife is great with child right now. And um, we, there's been a lot just in the last like two plus, like two, three years that we feel like prayers that we were praying together in high school and college are just now coming true, okay? So, so let me just say this. If you feel like the prayers you're putting in, like, you're ta- like we're talking about sowing into the, into the spirit and not into the flesh, and it's hard to see if it's worth it, let me just say, I, I'm tell- like, as an older brother here, like, it's worth it. Like, they're not wasted prayers. College students in the room, middle school, maybe that's for all of us. I don't know. Maybe that's a word for us today, but they're not wasted prayers. And, and maybe today, any of us, we're in the room, and we, and we feel like Peter. I mean, like, we feel like where it says, like, and Peter followed at a distance. I'm like, man, maybe that's you today. Maybe when I read that out loud, that just stuck out. And you're like, man, like, man, I've, I feel like I've denied Jesus. Like, I feel like I'm in Peter's shoes right now. Like, I feel like I've sown so much into the flesh that I, I don't know if I'll be able to reap, reap that kind of life while I'm here on earth. Well, let me just, let me just give us some hope and encourage you here um, there's, a, there's a lot of irony in this story about kind of the location of where everyone is in the story. I don't think it's an accident the way that the Holy Spirit and Peter kind of designed the story. Because um, it's interesting that Jesus, so in the temple, in, in, in that community, in, in their theology, uh, the temple, the Holy of Holies, uh, was where the very presence of God dwelt. Okay, and so to get there, there were like kind of certain layers to go into the temple that certain people could go into because God took his mission and his presence very seriously. And so here's Jesus 
The one who came to bridge the gap of heaven and earth to, was going to do finally and fully what the chief priest was supposed to do by, by offering sacrifices on behalf of the people so that they could come into the presence of God closer and closer. He was that the Messiah who was going to do that once and for all. Hebrews says that we have a great high priest who doesn't have to constantly keep making sacrifices for sin, but once and for all when he died on the cross to pay the penalty of sin, it was done forever both former sins that had happened and future sins that were to come. And so Jesus, it's ironic that Jesus is in the place, standing in the spot where those chief priests were supposed to be doing the job that he was going to complete, and they considered him worthy of death, and they kill him. They offer that atoning sacrifice through Jesus right here. But it's interesting, Peter, okay, so Peter, here he is, he, he's a Jewish man, he had just celebrated Passover, Right? He was very zealous for the holiness of God. And, and, and here he is, and he's standing in the courtyard of the high priest, which is, which is as far as someone who is not an ethnic Jew could go. Okay? So, so Peter, this guy who Jesus said, now I'm changing your name from Cephas to Peter because you're the rock on which I'm going to build my church. While he's there, the irony of the story is that he denies the Jesus in front of these people, the very people that he was supposed to reach. But let, let me give you, if you feel like you're, you're Peter today, maybe you feel like you're following at a distance, you can't be too close. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, it says that Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, three in the afternoon. So they're going up to the temple. There's a, there a man who'd been lame from birth. I'm going to skip over some of the verses. These are the first few verses of, of Acts 3. Um, he would go every day in the temple courts to beg. When he saw Peter, he asked him for some money, Peter and John. And because Peter's a preacher, he said, hey, dude, I don't have any money, okay? But here's what I do have. Here's what I do have. He said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. Okay, so... so he, he reaches down. Look what it says the, the, in verse 7. It says he reaches out, takes him by his right hand, helps him up, and the man becomes strong and he starts worshiping Jesus. Now, at the beginning of Mark, Peter witnessed Jesus do something in his own house. His mother-in-law was sick. Jesus comes in, and he reaches down with his right hand, helps up Peter's mother-in-law, and heals her. Okay, so in almost the exact same spot in the temple courts where Peter denied Jesus probably like 40 or 50 days before in the story we're reading in Mark. Peter goes back. He does the same thing he had witnessed Jesus do in his life, and he heals a man in the name of Jesus. In, in, in chapter 4, the, the priest, the captain of the temple guard, right? who was Peter talking to as he denied Jesus three times? The temple guards. The Sadducees, they came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people, and they seized them because Peter had just preached a great sermon and thousands of people came to know Jesus because of him. So the irony of the story is the same exact place where Peter had just denied Jesus and not done the job he was called to do, he had another chance at. See, Peter being there, even though he had denied Jesus, he still had a spot in, his, in the kingdom of God. So here's the thing. Peter remembered what Jesus had done in his life. He took that to other people. And he was given that chance to, to take the kingdom of God and push it forward. 
And so let me just say, don't doubt in the darkness what God has proven to be true to you in the light. In times where you feel like you're following Jesus at a distance, at times where you feel like I, I've just messed up too much, man, at times where like I, I missed an opportunity to tell this person I love about the good news of Jesus, just know that's not wasted time. Jesus wants to redeem that time for you. And he wants to, he wants to remind you that you are here for a purpose. You're where you are for a purpose in your job, in your family. And even if you messed up, let me say this, even if you messed up, today you're feeling like Peter. As we're talking to you, you're like, man, I have put God on trial. I've waited out and I've realized it's not worth it. But let me just say, Jesus still wants you and he loves you. And he wants you to play a role in his kingdom. He wants you, it's never too late to, to, to turn back to Jesus. I love it, what, what Peter says later in Acts as he's preaching, he preaches the good news of Jesus. He, he says, Jesus came and he died the death we deserve to die for sin, paid the penalties for our sin, rose from the grave, making new life possible now and forever. And I love it, they say like, well, what do we do? It says they were cut to the heart and they were convicted. They said, well, now what do we do? And Peter says, repent, therefore, so that times of refreshing may come in your life in the name of the Lord Jesus. So maybe, maybe today as we were talking, I mean, you felt like that was you. You heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that, that our enemies' sin and death have been defeated by his life, his death, and his resurrection, and that we can live in that eternal life with him now and forever. I tell you the same thing. Repent just means to turn towards God's way. Return so that times of refreshing may come in your life in the name of Jesus. Philippians uh, 2.12 tells us to work out our own salvation. So, so maybe today we're at different points in the room, right? We're sitting here. Maybe today was the time where you heard that good news of Jesus and you said, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. Like, I need to work out what that means. Man, I'll just tell you, right, it's easy. Just like Peter said, repent, turn to God. Right there where you are, you can just say, Jesus, I'm sorry for sinning. I want to, I want to live for you. I want to learn what it means to, to sow into the Spirit so that I can reap that eternal life here on earth and with you forever. Or maybe you feel like you're Peter today. You've walked in and you feel like you've been at a distance. Let me just say, I'm glad you came. There is no shame. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I just ask if you'd make the commitment, weigh it out. And not sacrifice. Sacrifice is giving up something great for something not as good. So we don't sacrifice for Jesus. We surrender to Jesus. We give to him. And I'll just ask you, I'll just ask you, what, what's in your heart that you need to surrender, that you need to remember what God has told you in times before, as Peter recalled the way Jesus healed his mother-in-law, as he remembered the promises of God and took hold of that life of Jesus and joined him in his work? What are those things you need to surrender to God? Whatever it is that God's calling you to do today, we've got some people that'd be love to pray with you in the back. I'm on the front row, I'll turn my mic off, I'm more than happy to talk and pray with you, but let me pray for us today as we respond in worship and prayer. Jesus, thank you that you love us. Thank you that, that our eternal life, whether that means experiencing your power and presence right now or, or after death with you forever, it doesn't depend on our failure 
It doesn't depend on our mood, on our attitude. It doesn't depend on what we have done, but it depends on what your son Jesus did for us, that he came from heaven. He was seated at your right hand, did not count equality with you a thing to be grasped, but he came to earth humbling himself to be a servant, even to death on a cross. So Father, as we think about the life of Jesus, as we hear his words, we, as we see that in our lives that, that we have weighed out what Jesus asks of us, put him on trial, and maybe didn't consider it worthy to be followed, Jesus, but now we're like Peter and we're looking and we're saying, no, no, I need that life. I need to be with you. Je Father, be with us. Let us feel your grace, your love, and your presence so that times of refreshing can come in our life in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.